0: Do that. I, I did a voice story. That was amazing. Yeah, <laughs> soundboard. He's just as likely to urinate on you. What? <laughs> <laughs> all right.
1: Cool. I've got Dude. you on the soundboard. Oh. So hits. Particular set of skills that we all have to be careful <laughs> of. Did you miss cj voice? Did you? I, I, yeah, I do. just fabulous. I, I, <laughs> That's why I heard CJ. That's why I heard it. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Right. What's That's your problem,
2: best Jason? Man. My best <laughs> Jason. Oh, I've got a couple of those. The hard I part think... is trying to find the
1: one I'm looking for in all all of them.
2: Yeah. You got make one of those old school like soundboard web pages where you got the buttons, you know? Do you, yeah. you guys remember those? Like they used to be like what? the thing where you had like the web page and I'm just going- had, like like Arnold Schwarzenegger saying something and you just click
0: each one.
1: Mm-hmm. It does have buttons but I, gotta, I don't have it memorized. There's too many of them.
0: I need, I need I'm, I'm right there with bugs. With bugs. With <laughs> there was Jason. <laughs> I need buttons. I need a whole deck.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so good.
0: We should have, we should have, we should yeah. have a, a board of red buttons that we could just go whack. You know, like, uh, oh my God, ah. it just blew COVID all over the office. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so you got to get some Ralphs in there. I don't have Ralph yet. You know, yeah, got to get... Oh. Hey, I'm here. Oh, man. That math real hard. <laughs> Brian's
2: actual size.
1: Are King kidding? Saying I'm actual size? Nice.
2: Clicking you can is get hard. hard. <laughs>
1: <laughs> have we got the soundboard set up? Is, 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 that, is that what we're playing with now? That's
2: mm-hmm. what I'm doing. Yeah. yeah, Brian. That's why
1: we don't have any of our most recent videos edited. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> because not doing the work. I
1: believe in you. <laughs> I believe in you.
2: <laughs> He's doing the important work. Mm-hmm. That's right.
1: The magic poop collector. <laughs> 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 oh God, that? Uh, I'm gonna, give these, like- I'm gonna give these to Bo, and he's gonna remix them all.
2: I'll oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. The sing <laughs> <was laughs> a <new laughs> song for you. <laughs> that,
1: was, that was some other girl. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that was some other girl i've oh. tried that before too deb it never works
1: <laughs> no other also said that.
0: i'm like so curious where that came from now like what was the context
1: <laughs> No, you think i know i said it I'd... all right so now i'm picturing ryan just in his house like in the light, laughing all the time <laughs> and with that it is one o'clock eastern time and it is time for your webcast, Joff. So we had uh, about 2,000 people register for this in 24 hours. So I think this is a topic that people are interested in. And so I am i know I'm interested to hear what you have to say. Uh, if this is your first time on a Black Hills Information Security webcast, thanks for being here. I uh, really appreciate it. Hopefully you come back for the ones in the future. And with that, we have people on the back end trying to answer your questions. Either you post them and go to webinar or in Discord. But if you have questions, we'll we'll be looking for questions that we can ask Joff to help maybe fill out the if we see people asking the same question multiple times or things like that.
0: You ready, Joff? Yeah, as ready as I'm going to be. Uh, Can you see my uh, screen?
1: Absolutely. And to everybody, if you ever need a pen test or information security services, you know where to find us with that.
0: Okay, well, welcome everybody to Move Aside Script Kitties: Malware Execution in the Age of Advanced Def- Defenses. Hey, you know, if you see me looking sideways like that, it's because I actually put the slides on a separate monitor. I'm going to try to put the uh, GoToWebinar in the in the middle here, but uh, that's so it has a nice four by three aspect ratio, so it looks good over uh, over GoToWebinar. So, all right, so let's get moving. I I thought this would be a fun title just because a lot of us these days are having a lot of trouble getting malware to execute in environments, and that's because the defense world has gotten a whole lot better. Uh, who am I? Well, if you don't m- know me already, and, and uh, a lot of folks do because I tend to have a pretty f- public face these days with Security Weekly and a lot of the Black Hills stuff, uh, I'm Joff. Uh, I am a malware developer, researcher, pen tester at Black Hills Information Security. I also t- teach for the SANS Institute, uh, SEC 573, which is uh, – a uh, Python class for uh, pen testers, as well as uh, defense and forensic topics co- covered there. Uh, co-host of Security Weekly, as already mentioned. And a musician, a lover of geeky things, which means uh, I like playing music. I like playing the keyboards once in a while when I get a chance. I have a lot of fun doing that. You, you may have even caught me playing uh, the piano in, confer- uh, in conferences and hallways uh, once in a while, which I, I do get a kick out of. So as pen testers, we all need and have the um, need to emulate our threat actors as as much as possible, right? We need to be realistic about what we're putting out there when we're testing. And really, our goal is to be able to demonstrate risk, right? We want to emulate the real threat actor and give that actionable value at a reasonable cost. That is ultimately what we're doing whenever we're in a pen testing context. Defenders, of course, love tuning their skills. For tools, techniques, techniques, procedures. And whenever we're in a pen testing context, we have a choice. We can be either cooperative or competitive is the way I look at it. And if you look at a typical red teaming organ, uh, engagement scope, red teaming is by its very nature going to be more of a competitive exercise, right? It's going to be longer in duration. It's going to be probably more expensive. It may not necessarily be limited exclusively to the virtual domain. In fact, it may have a physical aspect to it. Cooperative, on the other hand, is becoming increasingly popular in the penetration testing world. We like to refer to them as either purple teaming or assumed compromise testing. And the idea of a cooperative activity is that we scope an insider threat idea, right? We leverage w- real-world tactics to gain our privilege, to potentially escalate privileges, to laterally move, access sensitive data, and so forth. But we do it with eyes wide open, where the defenders can see what we're doing. They can converse with us as we do those things, and they can get value out of it in, in terms of tuning their, their skills and the tools, tactics, and procedures, and so forth, right? And this, in fact, uh, we find to be one of our most popular offerings. Uh, Black Hills to actually have an assumed compromise activity for a couple of reasons. One, it saves time and money, but two, it becomes a real knowledge gaining in a bi directional sense exercise. So if we position a pen tester on a workstation asset within the organization in the role of an ordinary employee, and then we have that pen tester work towards privilege escalation, lateral movement, and sensitive data access. So what I like to think of as kind of the three-step of assumed compromised activities, and we communicate openly and cooperatively with the defense team as we go through that exercise. We can create what, in essence, becomes kind of like a scientific experiment where we document all the things we're doing. We let the folks know when those things are actually happening. And then we have that open communication of, did you see these activities? Did you not see these activities? One uh, classic example might be, look, I've got an established uh, C2 channel. How about we uh, perform a few password sprays in your organization? And we're going to do those, you know, let's say three times a day. We'll let you know that, that, that one of those occurred at 10 a.m. Uh, you know, do you have instrumentation? Uh, in your environment to actually pick up those activities? Did you spot my workstation trying to authenticate to uh, 4,000 different accounts or whatever the population was at that particular time of day? If not, let's talk about the kind of events that would be generated by that activity, and let's try to work towards tuning your environment so that you can uh, pick up a, a password spray attack Because you know, and I mentioned that one in particular because that is, in fact, a very, very common tactic of an attacker. They need credentials. Everybody needs credentials ultimately to do things, uh, and credentials are really a weak point, and they're also a very, uh, very big attack point uh, in any exercise that we do. I would not be able to uh, get get through doing a presentation without mentioning the MITRE Attack Matrix. I am continued uh, continue to be. Uh, incredibly impressed uh, at the work uh, of the MITRE folks. We we all owe them a great debt of gratitude uh, for the uh, taxonomy that they have put together from an adversarial point of view. And they're also doing it from a defensive player point of view as well these days. Uh, It describes in detail how threat actors and adversaries penetrate networks, escalate privileges, move laterally, evade defenses. And it's all organized into fantastic, categorized tactics and techniques and it is extremely informative. It's a worthy to take a look at this from an attacker and a defender perspective. And I really, if you haven't looked at MITRE and read in depth, take some time to do so. Many things have changed over the last few years. We have certainly security defense vendors that have upped the game significantly. And it used to be if we if we roll back about five years, we could throw a C2 executable on on a, a desktop or an endpoint and get it to execute regardless, right? and you just cannot do that anymore. A lot of new paradigms and technologies have emerged. We have proactive threat hunting or hunt teaming. We have user behavior analytics that have emerged, uh, Microsoft Adaptive Threat Analytics for example. Endpoint detection and response products have emerged that are looking at more behaviors and operating system kernel calls and those sorts of event tracing and those sorts of things, right? We have network instrumentation and detection that is massively improved and people are looking at and more and more environments that we encounter these days, certainly from more sophisticated customers, have invested the time and energy to actually deploy application whitelisting in their environments. And I will admit, by the way, just at this point in the presentation, that we tend to be a little bit Windows slanted. And that's because most of the enterprise organizations that we encounter are still running Windows endpoints, largely Windows 10 endpoints these days. So speaking of Windows 10, it's better secured than ever, Right. It's uh, Windows Defender has actually improved considerably since its inception. Application Guard, Credential Guard, various memory guards for exploitation attempts. PowerShell, as we're well aware, has really, really well-instrumented logging capabilities. Transition Script Block and Module Logging, for example. Constrained Language Mode, AMSI with specific hooks for PowerShell to defend against scripting language exploitation. And also the fact that the... uh, event tracing these days is more and more actively being used by a lot of the EDR and defensive solutions to see what is going on on the endpoint. So we're now in a world where the endpoint is really, really well instrumented, even for those organizations that are not quite as capable. There's still quite a lot of stuff there on the Windows endpoint just out of the box. Now, there's plenty of those that have a dedicated security operations budget and they have more resources to leverage the best of breed technologies out there to really strongly instrument their environments. We we have encountered and I continue to do so very strongly manually tuned antivirus solutions, for example, products like Carbon Black, Bit9, AppLocker, App or whitelisting deployed solutions like Silence, Sentinel One, CrowdStrike, Falcon, and so forth, right? Things that, that really are getting very, very good, particularly at detecting a lot of the scripted-based at- attacks. PowerShell has really been targeted for defense, and, and it is being detected really, really well these days in terms of a lot of these solutions. So when you think about this from a C2 implant perspective, consider this environment that I encounter frequently where you know un- an unsigned executable file is not going to run. Visual basic script, such as... Uh, such as something that you would run with a C script or W script is not going to execute. PowerShell is heavily, heavily tracked, you know, module logging, script log, logging in, and event tracing, perhaps. Endpo- the endpoint is forwarding event information. Defensive solutions are leveraging Windows event tracing as well. EGIS traffic is very, very heavily filtered. And the only internet communications that you can get out of that environment via a uh, web proxy that's perhaps authenticated. So you're really in a tight situation as an attacker when you have this sort of world, right? In fact, the, the only communications channel largely available to you in this situation is, is via TLS over HTTPS. And that's it, right? And, and, and there are a lot of environments that will go to the, to the extent of filtering, filtering unknown protocols on a network basis that will go to the extent of filtering ICMP that will appropriately instrument DNS. Uh, so the UDP channels are closed up. And so you really do end up with just a TLS channel that you can get out. Let's do the Wayback Machine just a little bit, but it's really not that way back. Remember that Metasploit is still an entity in the attacker's toolbox or in the Pentester's toolbox. It is still an amazingly flexible and useful environment as a C2 channel. There are many payload options, but most commonly a lot of people are still using the reverse HTTPS or the reverse TCP payload with the meterpreter, because the meterpreter is a really incredibly capable shell as a command channel if you can get it established. Furthermore, the MSF Venom command still offers us a tremendous amount of flexibility. A lot of the output executable formats that will get caught today, frankly, you know, for example, executable DLL, PowerShell, JAR, HTA, VBS, et cetera, right? Those things are going to get busted in terms of that default output from Metasploit almost in universally today. And I think Windows Defender is probably one of the most strong defensive solutions that's getting getting those things caught. Even if you use some encoding, you're still going to get in trouble with some of those. Now, what I find very interesting as a pen tester and as somebody that's going to adopt and use the shellcode out of some of these tools is the transform output formats from from Metasploit, for example, right? You can get raw binary machine code out of MSF Venom for a reverse TCP or reverse HTTPS. You can get C-sharp byte arrays. You can get C-byte arrays, Java, Python, Ruby, and so forth, right? So in the case where you can get the transform formats, you have the opportunity to integrate those into other payload delivery mechanisms, but you need to be a little bit of a programmer, right? You need to get your programming hat on and understand how you might want to do that. And then obviously the huge point here is defense vendors are universally going to have signatures for most, if not all, of the Metasploit machine code. So if you look at the raw binary machine code that comes out of MSF Venom just about no matter what you put it inside of in a in, in a in a cradle of sorts, if you like, it's going to be signatured, right? It's going to get caught just just by the nature of the pattern of bytes that are inside of that binary or that, that carrier mechanism that you have. But there is always a way around that. So naturally, you know, in the ex- executable case, why won't my XE run? Well, here's an example, right? Metasploit, templates are in use if you don't specify one yourself. What do I mean by that? Well, when Metasploit generates a reverse TCP or a reverse HTTPS, it's going to actually generate the shellcode, create a unique executable segment for the pe COF executable. It is then going to tap, go ahead and insert that shellcode into that new segment. It's going to change the offset in a standard template that is part of the Metasploit framework to point at your shellcode when that executable runs. Well, if you think that a standard uh, template is, has not been incorporated into an antivirus vendor signature set, I think you're being really, really naive. It is, it is and will be incorporated into their standard signature set along with any and all iterations of shellcode that you could possibly generate. So therefore you're going to get busted, right? Now, you can change the template. I mean, this is an old trick. It's been around for a long time, but the dash X flag on MSF Venom allows you to use any executable as a template to carry Metasploit code. And so you can actually change that. And it still does work in some some cases these days. So don't forget some of those tricks. What about executable signing? Now, don't forget, if you have a code signing certificate and you can do this, by setting up an organization and proving that you are who you say you are. So admittedly, you have to probably set up a uh, bogus sort of LLC if you're in the States here or some sort of company organization around the world, and then apply for a code signing certificate. And then you could leverage that certificate to sign any executable content that you might generate out of any of your tools. You're going to stand a better chance of getting an executable to actually run if it is signed versus unsigned. And so leverage that if you can. If you're a Cobalt Strike user, for example, in our red team engagements, we, we will incorporate a code signing certificate into some of the pivoting activities, the lateral movement activities inside the malleable C2 profile. And it's important to do that so that you get signed executables if we're trying to execute via executable formats versus unsigned. What about network traffic? You know, if you look at it from Metasploit, well, if you use the reverse HTTPS, for example, your initial certificate exchange, 99% of the time is going to get stopped because, because the network, ven, network IPS vendors, be they on the endpoint or be they just firewall, next generation firewall vendors, are going to see that exchange and they're going to clamp down on that traffic, right? So you definitely want to use your own domain and your own legit signed certificate if you're using TLS traffic to carry the C2 channel Otherwise, you're not going to get anywhere today. Now, you know, Let's Encrypt has done us all a big favor. In, in more advanced environments, they actually may look at the age of the certificate and you may still be in trouble. Okay. The other thing to be aware of is if you've got a second stage, which I actually don't recommend these days for C2 channels, unless you actually encode it and you're using a server-side certificate, then forget about it. You're going to be busted, right? It's just universally that second stage shellcode by the endpoint defense on the on the system and or the network IPS in line somewhere is going to stop your traffic and you're just not going to get there. Encoders are not bad with MSF Venom, but we should remember keeping on the metasploit theme for a minute that encoders do have specific machine code routines that have to run for the decode portion when that shellcode is executed, which means on the decode portion it is going to write machine code back to the executable segment in which that shellcode exists. Now, in some cases, that can be a problem because for defense vendors, it is always going to be better for you as an attacker if you can mark a memory segment as read execute only instead of read write execute. If you have to mark a memory segment as read write execute, that's another red flag from a defense perspective that you probably have some self-modifying machine code that's running in that memory segment. And so encoders with MSF Venom means you would have to mark a memory segment as read-write executable instead of read executable, which can become an issue, right? The other thing is there's always going to be some stub assembly code in there, some stub machine code that kicks off the decoder, and that's going to be used potentially as a way to fire a signature on the fact that that shellcode is encoded inside of that binary entity that you're trying to execute. My personal kind of rules here is to leverage the MSF transform formats, but do your own custom encoding inside of another programming language instead of using the encoders that are inside of Metasploit if Metasploit is the source of your machine code. Never use a second stage payload, but rather try to stick with a single stage and stick with 64 bit these days. There's pointless using 32 bit machine code for a couple of reasons. One, 32-bit machine code is well and truly instrumented from the defense vendor perspective, and they have a handle on you. They're going to see it every single time. Secondly, though, 64-bit machines, I mean, they're universally common today. If you are unable to get a 64-bit executable content to run, I would be very, very surprised, okay? And then finally, try to customize your payloads to live off the land, where possible, especially if you're in an application whitelisting environment, you're going to have to live off the land, right? You can execute shell code from many different programming or scripting languages. The outline of sequence for execution of shell code or machine code that is generated from something like Cobalt Strike or MSF Venom, for example, is simply to create, well, it sounds simple. It's not actually as simple in most cases, but it is to create a memory buffer to copy that machine code into that memory buffer and then create some sort of thread of execution or a process itself that points to that buffer. Once you've followed those steps, you can get that shellcode running. There are many living off the land binaries, LOL bass, if you want to Google that, that can directly help in the application whitelisting case But there's also an extra benefit of living off the land binaries because they can actually help with AV and EDR evasion as well, right? Now, that doesn't mean you're going to leave zero trail at all because living off the land binaries are universally seen as potential execution fodder as well, and they are going to be seen by the defense vendors. But there's some better choices than not. I mean, if if I take install util, for example, in the uh, world of .NET, Install util is used to install regular programs, right? So, what's to say that my single instance of install util that happened to put my shellcode into memory is uh, is not just installing some software in the environment? So, it's it's not as bad as you might think. But you you know, you have to look into the context of your own test and your own uh, attack to actually understand what's going on in terms of shellcode obfuscation. The goal here is to ensure that any of the shellcode does not exist in the delivery cradle in its original form. That is, we don't want the AV solutions or the EDS just to trigger immediately. And there are so many possibilities available to us to customize or obfuscate the shellcode. We can encrypt it, you know, even with a simple exclusive or, right? We can encode it. We can encrypt and encode it. We could encrypt, encode, and compress it, Right. You can go to a number of depths and iterations of this with custom schemes, which are you know never going to be documented because you're not going to publish them uh, publicly necessarily, and you're going to make them unique each time that you you build your malware. And and, and in, a, in a perfect world, you're going to use some sort of CI/CD pipeline to actually automate this. Right now, for symmetric encryption or decryption, you are going to need a key. There's a couple of issues there you need to solve. One is you could just put the key into the source code of the eventual deliverable, whether it's an assembly DLL or a PowerShell script or whatever, and you'd be surprised how how many times that'll just work for you. You don't have to worry about it. The other thing that you can do is perhaps set up a scheme where you retrieve the encryption key somehow across the internet. DNS comes to mind. Who's to say that you couldn't have a number of different DNS domains out there that have an encryption key function that are used simply to decrypt your malware at execution time via one DNS lookup. Some of the living off the land possibilities with .NET include installerutil, MSBuild, CSC.exe, regasm, regsurf32, mshta, which is actually more going away these days. And if you don't have .NET, you still have the good old rundll32 and commodity malware frameworks that you can use with that. And you can um, create custom DLLs for run DLL32 if you want to. You don't have to just use pure DLL payload with Metasploit. You could certainly incorporate your own machine code, obfuscate it your own way, and create your own DLL just as easily as Metasploit creates it. I guess if there's one take-home message for this presentation, you can't use commodity frameworks and actually get away with it today, <laughs> right? That's the whole- That's the big take-home here. Defense evasion continued. One of my favorite things to do is leverage a content distribution network for the actual C2 channel traffic. This is beautiful because it hides your back end. And so, you know, more than likely you're going to be more, more in a red teaming kind of context here, but you may even still use it in an assumed compromise style of test where you leverage something like AWS CloudFront or any other CDN for that matter, all you need to do is send the traffic through the CDN for the C2 channel. And as long as it looks like HTTPS traffic, it's going to get back to your origin and you should be able to establish a C2 channel. So it's not limited to just, you know, one particular style of shellcode or one particular style of C2 channel. As long as the thing is able to talk HTTPS intelligently, it is HTTP protocol-based, in other words, a CDN is going to work for you. And so you can definitely uh, leverage that for your purposes. Don't use a stage payload. Second stage payloads with anything today, whether it's a Cobalt Strike, whether it's a Metasploit, anything else that you might imagine that actually has a second stage payload is going to get caught no matter what. The second stage is just going to get busted. Now, you can... You can get lucky with some encoding, whereby the second stage won't get caught. But honestly, I, I, I really think it's more of a heuristic mechanism these days. If you take Windows Defender, for example, that it looks for that process startup, reach out to the network, and as soon as some byte content comes back at a certain level, it's just going to get you on a heuristic basis. In fact, I've seen pop-ups from things like Symantec and Windows Defender and other products like that. Where they say, "You know what this thing receives some traffic? Are you sure you want to let this thing run right, or do you want to actually send this thing over to over to our cloud for uh, for it to be double checked right so second stage is is challenging you're always going to be better off these days having a single stage payload that uses TLS over HT- HTtPS and does not have a second stage coming back. It just establishes the channel and starts communicating. And you will be able to communicate that way. Here's an example of just a very, very small C-sharp piece of source code. This thing does a shell code execution of a very simple shellcode that you could provide out of uh, Cobalt Strike or Metasploit or whatever the tool is of choice. I know I keep saying that. It's just going to take a machine code You have to be careful with a couple of things here, all right? First of all, to describe it, this piece of C-sharp code, all it's doing is creating a function delegation pointer. Then it's creating a small heap. It is copying the shell code onto the heap. And then it is doing uh, a get delegate for function pointer method call, which actually essentially creates a pointer in memory to that shell code which you can then call as if it were a regular c function. And so it's a very simple method to encapsulate your shell code inside of C-sharp and get it to functionally execute. Now, you have to be cognizant of the architecture that you are running in terms of your operating system when you build and compile this thing. If you have 64-bit shellcode, then you need to build this binary as a 64-bit binary because it's going to call that function and assume that it is 64-bit assembly code. Otherwise, it's not going to work, right? The 64-bit processor is going to expect 64-bit machine code. And if it sees 32-bit machine code, things are not going to go so well for you and vice versa, right? The other thing that's going to happen if you try to use this to execute shell code is that let's say you take MSF Venom and you create a calculator shell code or something like that because everybody needs a pop-up calculator from time to time. I always joke. I joke with my wife and and my colleagues. Right, like some of the Windows virtual machines that I have, as soon as I start them up, they start popping calculators, and I know it's just time to retire those at that point because you know I have I have infested them with so many different things that. They, they've just got the calculator disease, right? They just keep popping calculators, which is my way of... Because the calculator shellcode, just using Windows slash exec in Meterpreter or, or Windows slash x64 slash exec is a really quick way of getting a small piece of shellcode for testing. So if you were to put an unencoded byte array of shellcode into the source code of this C Sharp project, let's say you're in, C, in Visual Studio, and you compile it, what's going to happen is is Windows Defender, because that's the default thing that's on just about everybody's box, right, is going to flag it before that executable even is compiled, right, before it even gets written to disk. And you're going to be like, oh, man, that sucks, right? So you're going to have to do something to that shellcode inside the source code. Now, what could you do? What I said before, you could consider compressing it. You could consider encoding it. You could consider, consider encrypting it. The beautiful thing about most modern programming languages is compression, encryption, encoding. It's built into most modern programming languages today, including .NET especially. And so, as you can see on the screen, you know, from Base64 string, it's pretty trivial to execute that method to decode a Base64 encoded shellcode. It's, it's not rocket science. And if you need to write a simple routine that perhaps does an exclusive or, again, it's relatively simple to exclusive or a sequence of bytes. This stuff is not rocket science. And then you have a sample of compiled code that is going to be able to execute in the environment without firing any defenses, okay? Now, you don't have to compile this thing down to a .NET assembly that has a .exe extension. You can always compile this thing down to a .NET assembly that is a DLL. In fact, that's ultimately what all .NET is anyway. And if you do that, you then have the opportunity of being able to use something like PowerShell or another .NET tool like InstallUtil or RegSVR32 or Reg uh, RegASM to load that code into memory. And so a lot of opportunities open up to you. Uh, with some fairly simplistic obfuscation uh, techniques, for example, did you know Top and off. I know a lot of you probably do know this hey look there 's c j um, hey, you 're at the halfway, mark man i got to ask you some questions <laughs> oh okay okay let's we will go, we will pause for some questions go ahead c j
2: so back to the exe run, one of our questioners wants to know, he goes, what does he have to change in the EXE that, that already have signatures in SIM tools? What, what, what do you have to change? Can you have more details around
0: that? Yeah. So uh, I think that was, that's what I was talking about the template in Metasploit, the executable that's used. My favorite trick, pick up a legitimate windows executable, be it write.exe, notepad.exe, you name it. And then when you generate the um, shell code, from MSF Venom, use that legitimate Windows binary as the template instead of using the standard template that comes with Metasploit. And not only that, specify the dash XE only option in in MSF Venom because what that does is instead of creating a random new segment in the PE cough file, it actually overwrites the original .txt, .txt segment in the executable code. And and makes you a much more obfuscated uh, binary. That, that, that doesn't mean it still won't get caught, but you are raising the bar significantly if you do things like that. Right. I think that addresses that one.
2: All right. There's a blue team of the number of ways you can evade camouflage. These
0: malicious programs. This, this is depressing. Now, that's a comment. Dang it. And a whole yeah, of this it is depressing, but you know, I'm on the I'm on the red team side of things, so uh, <laughs> there's, nothing, there's nothing more I can say about that.
2: Our aim is to help the blue team as we try to figure it out. Yeah. You can't, he says, I don't think this is true. He says you can't use commodity you you can use commodity, you can't use commodity frameworks, but it's useful for testing your grounds, right?
0: We can't. Yeah, I did. I'm not trying to assert that commodity frameworks should be thrown out. In fact, I'm trying to assert here that you can use commodity frameworks and you just leverage them in a different way and pre- repackage them in your own software. Right? I, I think that gets at what you were saying. Yep, yep.
2: Which EDR is causing you the most headaches?
0: Um, none of them. <laughs> no, that sounds really, really arrogant. Look guys i 'm not going to recommend a product here i you know, I can tell you that in the end, really, really good work on the blue team side is ultimately done manually. There's always going to be a technique that's going to be able to evade some edrs now some edrs are better at some things than they are at other things they 've all got their focus execution uh, um, focus uh, area i i 'll give you an example um the silence folks. And I've talked to the silence folks before. They're pretty good with the, the uh, detection of some of the uh, process injection methods that, that we can use. Okay. That's great. You can detect process injection. That's really, really good. But as a, an attacker, I can avoid using processor process injection if I want to. Now that limits my options, right? But, you know, it's a matter of sort of knowing, knowing the landscape. You know, if you take a, a, a carbon black bit nine, um, they have become really, really, really good at, at tracing uh, process relationships. Uh, and, and, and they're re- you know, they're really good at process relationship stuff, right? So as an attacker, I can go back against that and say, well, I need to change the p- process relationship. I need to use a technique perhaps to reparent a process if I create one so that I break that view, or I need to suppress event tracing so that it doesn't see that activity. So I- so there's for every EDR for every defensive solution, there are different techniques and ways that we can move around it. Nothing's perfect, but you know it sort of comes back to the defense in depth comment as well, right? I might break that aspect. I might have used something like what's on the slide right now, PowerShell to actually load the object, and your PowerShell script block logging may have seen this object load, and therefore you've got a clue to go chase after. So you know it, it's going to vary. But I'm, I'm not in the business of recommending products. We've all worked in environments with different products, and we've all seen how they have advantages and disadvantages. And each one of them is different. You know, Another one I could imagine is CrowdStrike Falcon. Um, I know guys over at CrowdStrike. I literally know guys at them. Mike, yeah, Mike, that used to work for us. Those guys do great work, right? But so do all of the other guys that I've mentioned here. So I'm not going to put one over the other.
2: So the fact is, Joff, I mean, so we have this, the, the Honey Badger Award we give out to those companies that just stuff us into our shoes, right? We hate it. We freaking hate it, but good on those companies. But so I've seen everything from CrowdStrike to Silence to, to Windows Defender in those environments. And then I've seen those same tools where we go through them like Swiss cheese. So there's some key implementation usually but i think what you said about the layers to defense and the active monitoring that is so yeah. crucial so yeah. there's the whole silver bullet well Jeff, if i buy crowdstrike we'll be in the money right
0: that- yeah that's actually a really good point cj you know we I, I ran into an environment you know without mentioning any names that you know they they had taken hundreds and hundreds of hours and put effort into manual tuning in their case of Symantec, that the payoff for them to put the hundreds of hours to customize and, and with those hundreds of hours, they had studied pen testing, they had studied attack techniques, they understood what they were dealing with and they actually put in active mitigations for that. And they were a very well defended environment. So, you know, it, it you do get back what you put into it, right? None of these products, when they come out of the box, are going to perfectly defend you. That's just the nature of it. You have to look at it manually and it changes every day, right? The minute you stop me running PowerShell scripts, I move over to .NET Assembly. So the minute you stop me running, you know, a Visual Basic scripts, so I move over to PowerShell or whatever. You know, we move and change, we fluidly assess the environment. So you've got to try to cover, you know, all angles as best you can and put the time in to understand the actual techniques that are being used.
2: Everybody wants the easy button, but it's an illusion. It's an illusion. The easy button is
0: an illusion. All right. Great questions. So what I was just saying, did you know, for the attackers out there and the defenders, you can, you, you can load a .NET assembly directly in PowerShell, right? Now, For some people, you know, sometimes I hesitate to put these kinds of slides in because I think to myself, hey, Joff, you know, everybody knows this stuff, right? They all are in your head, man. They know this stuff. But people don't always know this stuff, right? I can write a very simple web cradle by creating system.net.webclient object. I can download a DLL over a TLS web channel if I want to. And I can use System.Reflection.Assembly with the load method, to put that DLL assembly directly in memory. Now, you will have read about this as if it were fileless malware. It's not really fileless, but it is putting a sequence of bytes into the memory space of that PowerShell, and then it is creating a .NET object inside that memory space. Now, who's to say that .NET object doesn't inject shellcode into memory and actually give me a command channel? And even furthermore, who's to say that .NET object that, that I created here does not in fact run shell code that then subsequently injects itself into another process right so you know the actual cradle part of it the initial part of it is not tremendously difficult to implement now you can imagine scenarios of course where this kind of cradle code is directly executed from something like microsoft word or directly executed from something like a a click once installation or an MSI install, or that kind of stuff, right? Here's the other thing that people forget. .NET is actually MSIL, interpreted language for the CLR. It's reversible. There are decompilers out there that include JetBrains.peak, for example, and Telerik Just Decompile, and there's probably a bunch more that I don't know about. So on the attacker side and the defender, defender side, this is useful information. If I'm creating a DLL out of .NET, that delivers shell code, and I don't perform some sort of obfuscation of it, then in post-analysis, not necessarily in real time, somebody will eventually come along and reverse it and look at it and go, oh, I see what that thing is doing, and, you know, get you caught, uh, so to speak. Now, it may not be in real time, like I said, but, you know, from the attacker perspective, we can always use some sort of source code protector code to... to uh, it's really not avoid reversing, but we're just kind of evading the issue. And something like ConfuserX is is a classic example of that, where we can actually put the source in and, and, and come out with a uh, when it is reversed with something that's very very hard to read, which is which is useful. We can go further than that, though. We can embed .NET within .NET. We can embed .NET within GoLang within another binary. There's a lot of things that we can do here. Another little comment I wanted to make just sort of with my pen tester hat is sometimes we do need to write things to disk. You know, although it's not popular to write things to disk, when you do need to write things to disk as an attacker, don't make it easy for folks. A lot of times I have found in a, in a lot of environments, people have deployed PKI. And in those environments, the user workstation will have its own certificate as will the user. And the Cypher command can come in handy. I can use Cypher-E Slash E, sorry, for a directory. And then every file I put into that directory subsequently is going to be encrypted with my uh, certificate of my account that I'm logged into. And of course, this is a post exploitation technique. But what that means is I'm just making it a whole lot harder because you have to be my token, right? You have to be me to decrypt that data. And so uh, if you're uh, a defender and you're trying to grab files, perhaps that I've left lying around and they're encrypted. Well, I feel bad for you, right? It's, it's, it's just not going to work very well. Yeah, let's talk about AMC really quick. AMSI defenders, you guys might look at AMC as a great boon, right? Um, it can be annoying f- for me as the attacker. .NET 4.8 has, as AMC I implemented when, when loading assemblies now. So if I use system.reflection.assembly and I load an assembly or I load an assembly inside of C-sharp source code, it's now going to be scanned by AMSI. Well, how long do you think it took the attacker community to work out what was going on there? I can tell you, not long. Now, if you don't know about AMSI, well, it, it's really a response to fileless threats, right? AMSI was really all about get getting the malware to be processed through some sort of engine if it was script based like JScript or PowerShell, or Visual Basic and Office Macros, Visual Basic Scripting and so forth, right? It's really about non-XE based attacks and not necessarily software vulnerability-focused, uh, right? So, okay. Now, with ANSI, we can have a little bit of fun. I, I always like playing with Ampsey and just static strings in, in PowerShell on a command line. It's like, okay, what if I type invoke mimikats as a string? And Ampsey goes, oh, my God, that's malicious. That string is horrible. <laughs> Thou shalt not invoke mimikats in your PowerShell. Now, that string is actually completely harmless, right? But uh, AMC just likes to say some strings are really, really bad, right? Or if I actually put the multi-line string for the first few lines of PowerView.ps1, which is a tool that Will Schroeder wrote many, many years ago now to actually do some reconnaissance on environments. Oh, my God, that script has malicious content, even though I just typed in a string, right? Or if I type in Joff Power Powersploit. Oh, my God, he is so evil. He shall be struck down immediately. You are. In fact, malicious, right? Or if I type in joff fire, invoke shellcode, right? So I think I'm really, really good, right? So I just type joff fire and AMC doesn't fire. So I'm not that famous yet. But powersploit is a malicious string, according to AMC. Invoke shellcode is a malicious string, according to AMC. So not so good, right? It's amazing the simple things you can do look at the PowerShell context for a minute. I've got a little piece of code up there on my GitHub called PowerStrip. All the PowerStrip does is strip all the comments out of a PowerShell file, right? What did I say further up here? Things like invoke Mimikatz as a string or the credits to PowerView.ps1 as a string are malicious. Well, if I strip out all those comments from the script, guess what happens? The PowerShell runs most of the time, not all the time. But it runs most of the time, and it's a very simple technique to get around AMSI. Well, what if you don't have the luxury of getting around AMSI just by obfuscation? Well, you know you can go further. Because like all good attackers, everybody quickly worked out that we could actually load up the AMC DLL and then actually find the address of the AMC scan buffer function and change the EDI or the RDI register, that's either 64-bit or 32-bit, at the offset of 0x1b of the machine code, if you write three bytes over that to something that actually puts a zero into the EDI or RDI register, AMC is now blind. Now, the reason that happens is because the AMC scan buffer function uses the EDI or the RDI register in the processor to determine the length of the string that it has to scan. So as soon as we turn that into a zero, it thinks that the length of the string to be scanned is zero bytes long. And so it scans zero bytes and says, everything is good, which is wonderful. And there's a link for that. For fun giggles and grins, I wrote a uh, cute little um, .NET project I call WTF MC And WTF MC is able to actually take a string argument or a file-based argument, and it will try to match it against the AMC scan engine using the direct AMSI method calls. I used somebody else's .NET AMC implementation to do this because I was too lazy to write my own. I'll be dead honest, okay? And then I, in this this slide, I feed it to the ECAR string, which is the universal antivirus testing string as agreed to by the vendors. And, you know, by default, AMSI says, you know, WTF, AMC, you flagged my ECAR string as malware. Then notice I put a thing called do magic on the end as an extra argument. And my little argument there called do magic, you know what that does? It invokes the AMC bypass, which patches that EDI register so that there's a zero in the scan buffer. And AMC is no longer working. Okay? So we can tell AMC to stop working, which is a useful technique. Event tracing bypasses a similar thing. A lot of the EDR solutions these days are taking advantage of Windows event tracing to understand what's happening to the .NET assembly that's actually running. Everything is .NET these days. so much .NET going on, right? So the event tracing ends up using another function call in NTDLL.DLL called ETW event write. And that normal function always completes with a return 0x14, which is the stack return call from the function after it's completed doing its event write. All we need to do to bypass this one is change the virtual, protection, virtual memory protection at that particular function call in memory once the ntdll.dll is loaded, and then write in a return 14 at the beginning of the function call so that the event write just returns immediately instead of writing the event. So what have we done now? We've actually blinded the defenders because they're not going to see any events from Windows event tracing. And so that one's also well-documented. And of course, in your malware, you can actually double down and disable AMC as well as blinding the Windows event tracing stuff at the same time. So bypassing AMC and ETW, for example, are reasonably simple to implement in C-sharp. And uh, I suggest you author your initial implants to do this, at least optionally for your red teaming exercises. And uh, you can certainly incorporate those into post-exploitation activities as well. And it's all readily documented online. This is not stuff that I actually, you know, created some sort of secret source code myself. Okay, I slightly lie. I had to create some obfuscation to evade Windows Defender from firing on the actual technique execution. But we will talk about that in my class. Total great segue to advertise the class uh, on how to uh, actually get around some of those things, right? I'm running out of time, so I'm not going to talk about lateral movement. I'm going to go straight to the conclusion slide. If you have, as so many of us have, a context of deployed EDR, deployed whitelisting, advanced endpoint defenses, then there's kind of a set of rules that you have to keep in mind as an attacker. You need to keep the actual endpoint software execution to a minimum, first of all. Establish your C2 channels with no second stage payload, right? Never never use a second stage. Use real domains with real certificate when trans, uh, certificates when transporting over HTTPS. Leverage your defense evasion techniques such as AMC bypass and ETW disable code. Obfuscate your custom .NET assemblies. Sign your binaries. Leverage proxies where necessary for the lateral movement post-exploitation activities. And then leverage intermediaries like uh, content delivery networks to hide your C2 traffic initially. So that's about the end of my slideshow. And here comes my shameless promotion phase. If you want to know more and if you think that, oh, my God, has spent an awful lot of time thinking about this stuff, you would be right. I have spent an awful lot of time thinking about this stuff, and I decided to turn this into a course that I am teaching. And the first run is on January the 19th, and you will learn implant architecture with my own custom C2 framework. And then we will go through a whole bunch of different examples of how to embed shell code. In C-sharp, Python, Golang, different process injection techniques, direct shellcode execution versus process injection, for example, evasion technique discussions, uh, things like AMC bypasses, ETW, and so forth. Please, I'd love you to come along to my class, register here. The link is really, really long, so I decided to create a bit.ly link here. So it's just bit.ly slash joffs C2 class. Not a fish. Or, or you can go to not that. Not a fish. Uh, not a fish. Promise you not a fish. That's the registration link. It's going to be four sessions of four hours starting January the nineteenth, uh mid-morning. I think we're starting mountain time, roughly. For those people that are not on US time zones, you might be able to get away with coming in the evening. If there is considerable demand in uh, Southeast Asia, for example, do get in touch with us because I'm not opposed to teaching the class either early morning times or perhaps even later evening times for a particular run because I do understand having grown up in Australia, having traveled all over the planet, spent many, 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 many years and hours teaching in in lots of different countries, I, I really do understand the time zone challenges So I'm in Eastern U.S. time zone, but I'm willing to be a little flexible if you have an interest in a class that is not quite on the same time zone as these. So that's the end of the presentation. If you have any questions and comments, actually, I'll just go ahead and put it back on there uh, just so you can see the registration link. And CJ, go ahead and feed me some questions, sir.
2: Yeah, I had had one uh, person ask... For someone getting started, what's the best language to learn early? And I just heard you mention the two that I gave to them, Python and Golang. Uh, the key yeah. So key
0: yeah. if you're not um, uh if you're not really programmer mindset, like you're more of a scripting person, you've played around with let's say a little bit of born shell bash or maybe a little bit of um, you know, Pearl, God forbid. But if you if you're on that mindset then I would highly recommend Python, right? Python is absolutely the way to go. And in fact, for anybody in the information security industry, Python is an extraordinarily intuitive language to start to learn with. Now, as you get your sea legs and you move forward, then, you know, Golang these days would be an excellent step because Golang is multi-platform and uh, is essentially the C language reinvented for the modern era for concurrent multiprocessing. But don't overlook .NET. .NET is still incredibly important. And this is why in my class I'm covering Python, Golang, and C Sharp, because it really gives us a view of all those different angles in the context of, of malware and C2 channel execution.
2: Yeah, and then Phil went all... Uh... <laughs> step up. He asked about C Sharp or C++ for writing C2 implants. I think you just gave the nod to C Sharp.
0: Yeah, I I would kind of avoid C and C++ for the most part now. Although what you will find is as you look at the Windows kernel in particular, you are going to have to look pretty closely at MSDN and some of the old MFC, the foundational classes that not and by class I don't mean teaching class I mean the actual foundational code classes that that underpin the entire windows operating system those things have not gone away and to be one with windows and to leverage a lot of stuff out of kernel32.dll ntdll.dll you have to get familiar with those mfc descriptions and uh, be able to leverage those in those other languages frankly right mm-hmm. What is your preferred method of process injection,
2: if you can be so broad?
0: So my I don't have a real preference for process injection other than to probably steer clear of create remote thread, because that one's the most obvious one that will get caught. And when I say that, create remote thread is a kernel 32 call. That one will get caught pretty quickly by a lot of, well, silence is a good example of that. Actually silence will probably bust create remote thread. There's a lot of, uh, implementation out there that talk about using asynchronous procedure call to do remote process injection. And I will put an example of that in my class and talk about the pros and cons uh, of using that for remote process injection. Um, to to be honest with you, though, just to just to really get down to that question, I I, I want to avoid remote process injection. In some contexts, as much as possible, especially if they've got an EDI that I know that's sensitive to that, I should try to not use it if I can help it.
2: Excellent. I think someone's looking for an easy button here. What rules can I write for a sim to detect C two over
0: CDNS? <laughs> You know, honestly, I'm going to be a total shill here and talk about partner company, active c- countermeasures. If you want to detect C2 really, really well, then you need to get into further instrumenting your network. And deploying a Zeke sensor is a really good way to start that. Zeke is an open source product, uh, uh, formerly called Bro. Some people just call it Bro Zeek. And uh, Rita, which is the, the product that uh, Black Hills developed in conjunction with Active Countermeasures in the early days, and now it's become Active Countermeasures. Open um, source. Rita's Re- Re- still open source. And Rita is still open source. Is 100% focused on the traffic beaconing characteristics of command channels. And all command channels that you have do have a traffic beaconing characteristic to them. And being able to detect. The traffic beaconing characteristic with a high degree of probability is going to help greatly in terms of environments whereby the threat actor has, let's say, injected themselves into a process that's very well hidden, and it's not so obvious on the endpoint what's going on. Awesome.
2: Zach's asking about uh, Shelter. It's a tool that apparently injects
0: shellcode into EXEs. Are you familiar with it? Do You like it? Not familiar with the Shelter. I know there's lots of tools out there. You know, it's it. I have no doubt that a, a tool like Shelter or any of these others, if you are injecting shellcode into an EXE in in the environment. You're doing one of two things. You're either overriding the text segment of the PE cough with the shellcode directly, or you're creating a new executable segment in the image and then changing the the uh, starting uh, code offset for the for the uh, new segment. You know, it's it's not it's not rocket science. There's a lot of tools out there that that, that do it. They do it in different ways because the more you obfuscate in terms of injecting shellcode into an executable, then the, the, the less chance of, of some defense solution catching you, but eventually they will catch up, right? Because it's a, that's just a uh, chase the tail sort of game, ultimately. No,
2: I'm looking around for Jason because he's going to step in here and step on us any second.
0: Well, we are right up at 159, uh, nearly 2 p.m. Uh, <laughs> uh, Eastern time here in the States. Really, thank, thanks everybody for attending the talk. I hope you got a lot out of it. I, I know I sort of waffled on like I normally do. But part of it was, uh, was, was trying to entice you to come, come to the class because I really am looking forward to teaching this stuff. Sincerely, I put a lot of work into it. I think it'll go well. I'm deadly afraid I won't have enough material but then I suspect I'm going to end up with too much because even as I do these presentations, I'm like, Oh my God, there's so much there to talk about.
2: I I was going to tell you, Jeff, remember when you're saying, I don't know if my slides, if I over under just judging from this. (laughs) Yeah. You've got more material than you need, which
0: is good. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, you know, here's the other thing, uh, folks. When you're doing this sort of thing, you know, you're going to hear me when I'm training, assuming that you come to the class giving you my viewpoint, my perspective, my experience, okay? That doesn't mean there's not another way. One of the most glorious things about teaching one of these classes is the two-way interchange that we get to have, where people go, hey, you know what? We could, we could do this another way, and, and amazing ideas. And the, and the great thing about that is I get to actually try to incorporate those into future classes. And so you're really doing me a solid favor by doing that, but it's also a great conversation. So I, I love that aspect of what we do. It, it just gets me really, really excited. So mm-hmm. Deb is looking like she wants to uh, <laughs> shut this thing down at this point.
1: No, no, keep talking. Keep talking. It's fine. <laughs> Jason, Jason had to jet, so I get to be the one to put it into it all. <laughs> put it
0: into it all. Finish it, it, into it all.
1: Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, everyone, for checking us out today. We are here usually on Thursdays with webcasts. And please check out Jeff's class because it's going to be amazing.
0: Thanks, everybody. And I think there was a couple of questions about possibly a second run of the class. We'll keep you informed as that goes. But I'm going to try to do a few of them this upcoming year. So it's just a matter of scheduling. So uh, sending
2: an epic fail, yeah, there'll be more.
1: Way to no, I mean, no. jinx them there,
2: CJ. <laughs> Jinxing Joff ain't gonna happen. Not gonna happen. Do it all you want. <laughs> all right, thanks all everybody.
1: Guys, we will see you next time. I'm gonna end for
2: all. Avia, Avia, Avia. Avia that's all, folks.
0: <laughs> we stop broadcasting. <laughs>
2: uh, I don't think so because I can still hear you. <laughs> I can still hear you. I can still see you. <laughs> this could get dangerous.